0: We want to understand this afternoon what this hugely significant part of John's gospel has to teach us. I had a rather disturbing experience uh, a little while ago. I went to the Toy Museum. I think it's in Bethel Green, somewhere around there. I was on a school trip. We went to a toy museum, which was nice. You go and you look at all the old toys from history. They had a rocking horse from the Victorian times, and we all looked at them. We imagined Little Victorian children playing on the rocking horse, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Beautiful. We went round a corner and we saw the toys that were played with during the war. Wow, it was amazing to think of children playing with those toys. And then we went round the corner and I saw the most shocking thing. I saw a toy that I played with (laughs) in a museum. And I suddenly had this overwhelming sense, that's wrong. That's not a museum thing. It was one of those clicky things. You don't even know what they are. And there was a Spectrum 16K computer in the museum. That was my first computer. It's always alarming, isn't it? But I remember, sorry, all about to say, I don't know if you ever remember playing with um, something like this. Like this. Probably not. Oh, it doesn't even work. I can you make it move? Doesn't matter. Anyone else that ever... It's... We're working on it. There it is. Anyone recognise that? Right, what is that? It's fuzzy felt, right? One of the greatest toys ever invented. Many happy hours playing with fuzzy felt. Now, the reason I'm talking about all this, it's slightly bizarre, but it will stick in your minds, I hope is that I think that in our world, we live in a fuzzy felt world. We live in a world where people are fuzzy about what is real and what is right and what is wrong. Where people don't know the right things. They're not clear. We live in a world that's Befuddled, and people don't know the right things to do. They don't know what's right and wrong about God. And you see this all the time in culture, in the songs that we listen to. People often articulating this sense I don't know. Is there a God? I don't know. What am I supposed to do with my life? I don't know. Am I valuable? I don't know. And we live in a fuzzy felt world, a world where things are not. Clear. And as I've read John 3, the thing that struck me over and over again is it is so clear. What John says, it is so clear. And it's as if it cuts through the fuzziness and the confusion and the muddledness that we experience in our culture. It cuts straight through it like a knife and says, Here it is. It is light piercing the darkness. It is glory shining so that we can know. So I want to show you four things that are crystal clear from John's gospel. Four realities. Not things that we listen to and go, well, let's decide if that's true or not. They are true. What John tells us is true. And if you will listen You will see how it brings such clarity to a world that is so fuzzy. So I invite you to leave your fuzzy felt world and to come to the crystal clear, solid, beautiful world of John's gospel where he will show you what is true. So here we go, four things. Um, We're just going to work through these verses. The first thing that is crystal clear is that Jesus came... Jesus came to save and not to condemn. Let's be crystal clear about that. Often people say, if there is a God out there, I don't know what he's like. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know what he thinks of me. I'm not sure if he's even bothered about me. Here, in John's Gospel, John tells you exactly what God is like And how he feels about this world and how he wants to treat everybody. Look at what it says in verse 16. For God so loved the world. Here is God, he loves this world. It's the world that he made, it's the world that's his creation. He is the great artist who has painted this masterpiece and has set out this beautiful creation, and he loves this world. And he loves this world despite the fact that this world has turned its back on him and done an about turn and said, no, we'll go it alone. And yet he still loves this world. And driven by love, God sent his son, Jesus, into this world so that we could be saved. He did not send his son to condemn, but to save. You see that in verse 17? I think that one of the things that brings great fuzziness to our world is that most of us live our lives under a cloud of condemnation. We feel condemned, judged, so much of our lives. We feel judged by society around us. Isn't it easy? Don't labels so quickly stick to us? I'm a failure, I'm useless. I'm thick, I'm stupid, I'm rubbish. Because we look at what's going on in society and we read the glossy magazines and we look at the airbrushed pictures of the celebrities and we say, I'm just, I'm ugly. And we're judged by the magazine, the very same magazine that just a few pages later will tell you you should think well about yourself and have high self-esteem. That's why we're fuzzy. Because our world is talking nonsense to us. Telling you two messages which don't make sense. And you end up feeling judged. What am I supposed to feel? Am I supposed to feel fat and ugly? Or am I supposed to feel like, beautiful about myself? Because the world is telling me both. And we can feel condemned and we take these labels to us because of what we see in society around us. Sometimes it comes closer to home. Sometimes we feel condemned because of things that friends or family have said to us. These are deep things, and many of us bear these scars. We live our lives with this constant sense that we are condemned because of things we've experienced in the past. Can I say to you, say to you that I, I think we also can feel condemned because of church sometimes? I think churches can become judgmental places. Churches could be places where we point the finger at one another, where we look at others and we think, I'm rubbish, I'm such a rubbish Christian. Or we sometimes use labels. Can I say, we need to be really careful of this. We could be really condemning. You know, when we talk about someone and we might say, oh, they're quite a flaky Christian. Don't ever say that. What does that even mean? When we put a label on someone and judge them and they live under this condemnation, And there are the people who are successful and the people who aren't. And we live in a church. We can be a church where we feel condemned. And perhaps most close of all, isn't it true that often we condemn ourselves? That we live under our own condemnation. We're constantly telling ourselves that we're not worth it and we're not valuable and we're not important and we're rubbish. No wonder we're fuzzy. No wonder we don't know what to think of ourselves. We're supposed to feel like we're awesome and can do anything, and yet we're so conflicted because everything in us tells us that we're not. Okay, here comes the crystal clarity. You ready for this? God didn't send Jesus to condemn you. That's not why Jesus came. He did not send his son to point out all your failures and to tell you that you're rubbish and to label you as useless. He didn't send his son so that you'd live under a cloud of disapproval. He sent his son so that you could be saved. He didn't send his son to simply affirm you and say, oh, don't worry, everything's fine. He sent his son to take you from a place down here and to lift you up and to make you beautiful. to take you from a place of darkness and bring you to a place of light where God would smile on you and approve of you and say, I love you. That is why Jesus came. Do you know what? I deserve to be condemned by God. I absolutely deserve to be condemned. I've done many, many things that I know are wrong. But that's not why God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus not to condemn me, but to take my sin, my wrong, on himself, that Jesus would die on a cross. Take my condemnation so that there's nothing left for me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There is nothing for you to feel guilty, or a failure, or rubbish, or useless. There is only a father who says, I love you. I saved you. I was um, trying to think of an illustration for this. Um, and I came up with all sorts of really complicated things about desert islands and kings and little battles and armies and kind of gremlins and all sorts of things. And and um, then realized that... There, there's an illustration that we heard last week in the passage back in chapter back to back in verse 15 uh, verse 14 we're told of the time when Moses lifted up the snake in the desert the snake on the pole The people are in big trouble. God's people, we saw this last week, God's people have rebelled against God. Snakes come in among them, they bite them, and the people are dying because of their sin. And God says, I'm going to put a pole, Snake, put a snake on a pole, and all you've got to do is look at the snake and live. What is the point of the snake? Not to condemn, but to save, right? If God had wanted to condemn, he would have put up a list of all their failures. Here are all the ways you've disobeyed me. Put that on a pole so that as the snake bites you, you know why you're dying. He could have put up his law and said, here is the law that condemns you. This is why you're dying. But he didn't. He put a snake on a pole because he said, I love you and I want you to be saved. Do you see that this is what God is like? Here is crystal clarity, I deserve condemnation, but instead he saved me. So I don't know what labels you carry around with you. I don't know what condemnation you carry on. I don't know what clouds you live under. I don't know the ways in which you feel like you've failed. But I do want you to know this. God sent his son so that you would not be condemned anymore. Not condemned by culture, your family, your church, or even yourself. Not to be condemned. He wants to take those labels, rip them up, throw them away, and say, you need a new identity. Learn who you are. God did not send his son to condemn, but to save. Do you see how clear that is? you want to know how God feels about you? This is how he feels. This is what he intends for you. This is his purpose for you. To save you, to save you, to save you. Not to condemn. Let's move on to the second thing. The second thing is that there are only two responses. You should have an S on the end. Apologies. If that annoys you, I'm sorry. There are only two responses. Once you understand that God's intention and his purpose in sending Jesus was to save, do you see that now it leaves you with two choices? Here it is in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So when God sends his Son to save and not condemn, there are now these two choices. When the snake is lifted up in the desert, there are two choices. You can either look at the snake and be healed, or you can not look at the snake and die. But if you choose to not look at the snake, do you see that you can hardly then turn around and say to God, well, you've been a bit harsh, God. When God condemns those who refuse to look at the snake, it's because they are refusing to accept the way that God has chosen to save us. So you might say, well, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone refuse to be saved? What a weird thing to do. Why would anyone, drowning in the sea, here comes the lifeboat, and you go, oh, I see. You just come to laugh at me, drowning. You just come to laugh at me because I can't swim. That's weird. When the lifeboat comes and you're drowning, you get in the lifeboat. When you realize that you've sinned and you're condemned by God and he sends his son, you Get in the sun. So why on earth wouldn't you? Well, verse 19 is very telling. You see, we might say, well, the reason is because people, you know, have intellectual issues, got some problems with it, not quite sure. Verse 19 says that's not the real problem. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. What is the primary reason why anyone would say, I don't want to be saved by Jesus? The primary reason is because people love darkness. We have hearts that love the dark. Why? Well, because in the dark we can hide our sin. In the dark we can pretend we're okay. In the dark we can carry on living our lives our way, doing it my way, doing whatever I want, and we think we can get away with it. And light terrifies us because we fear being exposed. Do you know what it feels like to fear being exposed? My guess is that every single person in this room, there are things that we hide because we're deeply ashamed. There are secrets that we hide away because we don't want people to know because we'd be so ashamed and the idea of bringing those things into the light is why so often what we do are, are the sins that we commit we do them in secret we do them privately we do them when no one else is around we do them in our in our thinking in the darkness of our hearts we do them at night we do them when no one else is near and we're terrified of the light So here's this interesting dynamic that God loves the world and wants to save the world, so he sends his son. But when the son comes, we as humanity say, Oh, that's terrifying. And so we run, we're like cockroaches. When they see the light, scatter. And it's a tragedy. But this is the primary reason why people will not come to Jesus. Because they're afraid. And because they love being able to do it their own way. That's response one. But verse 21 says there's a second response. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. So those who recognize that this man, Jesus, has come not to condemn but to save, they run towards the light. They're more like moths, right? Going, to, going towards the light. Cockroaches running, moths coming. They come to the... I mean, yeah, it doesn't really work, but anyway... They come to the light, right? They, they come to the light and as they come to the light, right, which is a terrifying thing because it's scary to come to the light because you're going to be exposed and yet as you come to the light, you discover you've not come to condemn me but to save me and you discover that Jesus takes all of that sin and that shame, all of the secret stuff that you're so ashamed of, he takes all of it away. He saves you and he welcomes you and there's nothing to fear. So here is the choice. The choice is believe in Jesus or reject him. That is come to the light or stay in the dark. That is find the freedom of absolute and complete forgiveness and all your shame being wiped away or remain in the dark where there is shame and fear that one day you'll be exposed as a fraud. Jesus says don't live there. In the dark there's fuzziness. In the dark there's confusion. In the dark, I feel guilt, but I can't stop. Don't you find that about sin? Don't you find that there's stuff that you don't want to do, but you keep on doing it? You can't work out why, but you don't tell anyone about it because it's so terrifying that you might tell anyone that you've got this problem, but you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you don't want to. There's such confusion. How can I find a way out? Well, here's the way out. Jesus is the light who came not to condemn but to save. Jesus is the light who, when you come to him, you suddenly discover it was you and what it's not about them what you've done, but suddenly it becomes clear that God has saved you. It's all been done through him. One of the biggest problems in church is that we hide from one another. We hide because we want to keep a good show. We want to make ourselves look good. We don't want to be judged. An amazing thing it would be if we were a church who treated each other like Jesus treats us, who were quick to forgive, who as someone takes that risk of revealing truth about things they're struggling with, that we say, "Welcome, let's work through this. Let's love each other. such clarity comes through let's 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 keep going. Um, third truth that comes through. Um, and that is that Jesus is the big issue. So let's get into this bit that um, Alice was talking about earlier on as well, Um, and we'll do this a little bit more quickly. Um, But we're introduced again to John the Baptist. He came up back in chapter um, 1, and this kind of rounds off the section with John the Baptist as our main first speaker, but he's about to be put into prison. That becomes clear in verse 24. But the interesting thing with John the Baptist is he's busy baptising people and, and then Jesus and his disciples, there seems to be some other baptisms going on over here and then there's this argument that kicks off, right, about ceremonial washing in verse 25 and then verse 26, John's disciples get the hump and go, hmm, they're all going over to him. Why are they all going to him? Come on, John. So, all this distraction going on. They're having an argument about ceremonial washing. Are we supposed to get baptized? How do you get ceremonial washed? What does it mean to be clean? They're having these arguments about baptism and stuff like that. That's become a big argument. And then this argument about who's the most important. And then John the Baptist brings the clarity, right? He brings the clarity and he says, No, it's Jesus. He's the issue. Stop arguing about things that don't matter. Stop getting distracted by your petty arguments. Stop getting distracted by kind of personality stuff. And get your eyes on Jesus. John is so good. I mean, John the Baptist, what a a guy. Seriously, I mean, just such a humility. He knew his place. He knew his job. He knew what he was supposed to do. And he was more than excited to do it. Isn't that what you long for in life? The freedom to go, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know who I am, I know my place, I know I'm not the Messiah, and I'm really excited to do my bit. I love it when you meet people like that. When you meet people who've got over themselves, who've got over their obsession with making a name, who've got over their obsession with needing to have an argument and win the argument about baptism. I mean, churches split over this stuff all the time. Churches split over pointless arguments around music or around blah-de-blah. They have arguments about the things don't matter. And you say, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the big issue. As soon as you take your eyes off Jesus and you start to argue about other stuff, you are in big trouble. And so John the Baptist, being this wise pastor of his little group of disciples, he says, listen, lads, don't get distracted. It's him, it's him, it's him. He must become greater and I must become less. Oh, that we would be people who say, I love who Jesus made me to be. I love the gifts he's made, given me. I love the part he's given me to play and I'm going to do it for the very, very best of my ability. I'm going to do it for his glory until the day I die and go home and see him and he says, well done. You did an outstanding job of caring for the minis, of loving people, of helping with this, of leading focus. do Do you see? You take your part. You take what God has given you and there's such clarity. And we get fuzzy, muddle headed because we're all so ambitious. I want to make progress. Oh, perhaps I should be there. Oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. And John the Baptist would say to you, shh, shh, Jesus is the big issue, not you. Serve him. Receive what he's given you and serve him. Love him and find freedom and joy. Such clarity, such beauty. Which brings us to the fourth truth. And I mean, there's so much in this. We're only going to skate through this. You'll have to do some work on this on your own. But the fourth thing is that here is the only voice you need. We're surrounded by voices all the time telling us what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe. And then in verse 31, look at this. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he's seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. So John the Baptist says, there's something different about Jesus than everybody else. Jesus is from above. That's where he came from. Look, imagine if we were uh, not a church full of human beings right now. We were a church of dragonfly larvae. Which would be awesome, right? Right? And we'd be in a pond because dragonfly larvae can't meet in lecture theatres. But we'd be in a little pond, and we'd all be getting together, and we'd notice that from time to time some of our number disappear. We don't know where they go, but we've got a hunch that they they kind of go up and through the sky, but we don't know what's up there, and it's strange, and we're muddle-headed because we're inquisitive little dragonfly larvae we talk to each other about it so I wonder what's up there but the trouble is all of us are from the pond right none of us know all we can do is talk pond talk all we can do is talk about the weeds and the stuff around us and we can speculate but we don't know what we need Right? What we imagine one day suddenly the sky parted And an amazing creature splashed his way in among us and said, I'm a dragonfly and I've come from above. You See, now that dragonfly can tell us what we can never know for ourselves. That's what John the Baptist is saying. In almost exactly those words. Jesus is the dragonfly, the great dragonfly who breaks his way, who comes from above. This is what we've seen over and over again in the language of John chapter 1. He is the Word, the eternal Word who created the heavens and the earth, the eternal Word who became flesh, who smashed his way through the sky into this world. He is from above. In the language of John, later on in John chapter 1, he's the Lord who became the Lamb. This is what we've seen, right, over and over. John is... Just telling us the same stuff. Here is the one who has come from above. And so when you listen to him, he is not speculating. He is talking about what he has seen and heard. <laughs> Isn't that, I just love this. Here comes Jesus, and he says, um, I've been there. I can tell you what it's like. I've just come, just to. A little while ago, I was at my father's right hand. I was there with him. I'll tell you what it's like. This is the claim at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. He's come from above. There's no other world religion that claims this. Muhammad is not from above. He's from the earth, so he speaks as one from the earth. Do you not see? This is what makes Jesus different. Buddha is not from above. He's from the earth, and therefore he speaks as one from the earth. Every human guru, every wise philosopher, they speak from the earth because they are of the earth. That's where they're from. That's all they can speak. They can speak about ponds. Now, they may be able to say clever stuff. They may have interesting ideas. And they may have ideas that you find captivating. But when someone comes who says, I'm from above, you stop everything and you listen to him. He's from above. Therefore, he's the only voice that we need to listen to. And the tragedy is that when he came, people did not accept his testimony. We've already seen this. Why? Because they love the dark. They don't want to know about the above. We want to stay in the pond under a rock. But when you believe what Jesus says, you're not just listening to now a man. Do you see verse 33? It's fascinating. Whoever has accepted what Jesus says, has certified that God is truthful. Because when you listen to Jesus, you're listening to God because he's the son of God come from above. Therefore, it really matters what you listen. If you refuse to listen to Jesus, you are refusing to listen to God. You either listen to Jesus and say, God is true. Or you don't listen to Jesus and you certify that God is a liar. That's it. And that's because, verse 34, when Jesus comes from above, he speaks the words of God by the Spirit of God. God pours out his Spirit on his Son, and his Son speaks the very words of God so that you can know the truth, so that it cuts through the fuzzy muddledness of pond life, and so that you can see into eternity, so that you can see the future, so that you can see what is really true. And in Jesus, you find the one who the Father, God the Father loves, has placed everything in his hands. So he really knows what he's talking about. You're not listening to some freak who doesn't know what they're talking about. You're listening to the one who knows everything. And therefore, that verse 36, here it is, the crystal clear finish. This is it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. That's it. Everything hinges on Jesus everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. There is no more important decision that you will ever make. There is no more important issue that lies before you. This matters more than who you marry, what job you get, where you live, what car you buy. This matters more than your promotion. This matters more than anything you will ever do. What you do with this man, Jesus, will affect your eternal destiny. If you will believe in him, if you will trust him, if you will say, Jesus, you came to save me. I deserve to be condemned, but you came to save me. Jesus will smile. He will reach out his hand and he will say, my precious daughter, my precious child, welcome. And you will experience the life that you were created for, eternal life that begins now as you know God as your father and that continues beyond the grave as you fly through the sky to eternity. And as you enjoy everything that God has for you, that sin has robbed you of, it's all here in eternal life. Oh, there's so much more to say and it's just not time. But if you believe in him, that is yours. Do you believe in him right now? Do you believe in Jesus? If you do, it's yours right now. It's who you are, not condemned, eternal life, in the light. But whoever rejects the son will not see that life. If you choose today, if you choose in this life to reject this Jesus, then all that remains for you is wrath. God's wrath. If you reject the one way that God has given us to be saved, then there is no other way to life. The Bible is clear that God is angry at human sin. That's why he sent his son to save us. But there will be those who refuse to get in the lifeboat. There will be those who refuse to listen to this son. There will be those who refuse to believe and come to him. And the Bible speaks in the strongest warnings. It says God's wrath is not something to be messed with. God's wrath is agony and pain. It is what the Bible calls hell. Jesus warns us because he loves us. We have to listen to him. We have to listen because God has provided a way. He does not want you to go to hell. He does not want anyone to go to hell. So he sent his son to die so that you could be saved. What more do you want him to do? Will you believe in him? Will you come to him? Will you find life in him? This is what matters more than anything. So why don't we take a moment to pray, to feel the weight of the seriousness of these words. to ask that God would help us to find joy in who we are because of Christ and to pray for our world, to pray for those who don't know him. Let's take a moment to pray, then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you so love this world. That you gave your son to save us. Father, here is crystal clear truth. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us to listen. Help us to listen to this one who's from above. Help us to believe in him. Help us to know that we're not condemned in him. Help us to find joy in him. And Lord, as we consider the realities of your wrath and your hell, Lord, we ask that those things would, that we take those seriously. Lord, help us to feel the weight of eternity, even this afternoon. We are dealing with eternal matters. And we ask this afternoon that we would run to Jesus and find safety in him. We ask it in his name. Amen.